Angela Sarian, welcome back to the new school. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, it's an honor. We've had a wonderful morning in which uh, you talked about some of the influences on your work, mm -hmm. and we talked about three of your books, starting with the Tarot Handbook, uh, The F Fourfold Way, and Living in Gratitude. And we'll come back in, in a little bit to this beautiful, beautiful book, The Second Half of Life, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom. But before we do that, if I may, I'd like to go back um, to um, early influences. You, you spoke of your, of your grandparents and great-grandparents and of the Basque tradition of uh, fishermen and whalers and adventurers from which you come. And, um, but I'd love to, as much as we can, explore it a little more deeply. Um, just to begin with the historical context, um, I was born in 1943 at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. and, um, in that period before that, in the 1940s and so on, um, what the Basques endured during the Spanish Civil War uh, was extraordinary. Um, the Basque country and Catalonia were special uh, objects of Franco's um, uh, you know, rage. Um, and of course, both had their own language and both had a fierce sense of cultural identity. Um, and um, so I wanted to ask you, were you actually born in, the, in North America or in, in the Basque country? I was born in Glens Ferry, Idaho. I was, and my parents had just come um, from Spain, and I was born in 1940. And they, then they, when I was six months old, then we went back to Spain, right? And, um, and it was after so many of my cousins and my aunts and uncles uh, were uh, in the bombing of uh, Guernica in 1936. And, uh, and my father's... Um, um, family, uh, his mother and uh, my grandmother and, and, uh, um, and his grandmother were, uh, and his father were, uh, were lost in that Monday marketplace and several of the children. So there was a deep imprinting and so many of the Basques uh, Left, uh, went to Argentina, went to Mexico, went to Russia, went to the United States, came through Ellis Island or came through Angel Island. Um, my, both of my grandparents came through Ellis Island and my parents came through uh, Angel Island. And uh, during that time, and um, then when my father was a sheep herder in in Idaho, and uh, then I was raised uh, biculturally until he got his uh, citizenship. Uh, but I also learned at a very young age. I faced a, a lot of prejudice, even in Idaho. Uh, we were 
uh, called the Black Bascos, uh, and we were put on the same level as uh, Asians and uh, Afro-American people uh, at that time. And I, uh, the greatest influence with my... Uh, I lived in a three-generational um, family. My, my grandparents uh, uh, lived with us. And um, the... Uh, both in... Spain and in Idaho, um, um, the language in Spain, Franco, uh, you could be jailed uh, for speaking the Basque language. There was a generation that totally, uh, we only spoke language, the Basque language in the home because we couldn't speak it in the streets, we couldn't fly the Basque flag. Um, and so there was that prejudice in Spain. Then in, in Idaho, uh, there were the, <laughs> at the time when I was being uh, raised there, there was a deep prejudice between and cattle wars and sheep wars going on at that time. And, uh, and the Basques had r- really control of, of the sheep market. Uh, uh, during that time, so. Uh, Why did you go back to to Spain in such a difficult time? Um, because it was more difficult uh, here during the Depression, because World War One, when I was born, uh, World War One and World War Two were in 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 that time and and so, so it was actually more difficult in the United States yeah, than it was in Spain, Spain despite the fact that it was horrifically difficult in Spain, Spain at that time wow. so um, so that's one of the motivations of writing the or putting together the book on working working together diversity as an opportunity because moving uh, the Basque people out of all the indigenous people have become self-sufficient even in Spain and in Idaho they have uh, because of the Mondragon model or the cooperative that that is absolutely uh, you will never see among the Basque people a homeless person it's amoral Uh, and uh, so that everyone works in community and, and so we've been able because of initiating free enterprise is to stay self-sufficient and that's been one of the reasons why uh, Franco was so anti-Basque and also anti-Catalonians is because they were entrepreneurial people entrepreneurial, self-sufficient took care of their people Uh, everyone worked together and the the essence of what is known as cooperatives in this country really has been an old, ancient model. Among the Basque people, they've had granary co-ops, they've had um, fishing co-ops, they've had banking co-ops, they've had industrial uh, co-ops, but you you won't find uh, in the Basque country there's no such thing as anyone not having a job. Mm -hmm. So when you went back to Spain at the age of six months, you said, mm-hmm. how long did you stay? Till seven. 
until you were seven years old. And then came. So from six months to seven years old, you lived in Spain and right. post-Franco yeah. Spain yeah. at a time when people were hungry a lot. Yeah. 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 So what was it like being a little girl, six, seven years old, living and having been born in the States, come back? What was, can you just give us an image of, that you remember from that period of your life of what it was I, actually like? You know, it's so interesting because I, I had the fortune and still have the fortune of really um, being very beloved in community, you know, we always had food, we always had shelter, we always had family. Uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh, so you felt protected? Yeah, I felt very safe, very protected. And, you know, uh, at that time I didn't know what uh, poverty was until the that I came back uh, to this country um, because the juxtaposition of, you know, I used to bring lots of people. <laughs> My mother just couldn't believe it. I would bring kids home for food. <laughs> you know, come to dinner, come to my house, come to my house, <laughs> come to dinner. Uh, um, uh, and uh, I um, the kind of juxtaposition between fierce independence to a fault in this country combined with kind of real uh, sense of communal living or community. Um, that juxtaposition was the best of both worlds for me because also I historically I was blessed in the time that I was born primarily because uh, when you think about the 60s and the the six great movements that were started in the 60s with the civil rights movement, with the humanistic movement, uh, with the interfaith movement, with the economic um, uh, movement with the feminist uh, uh, movement, uh, and then there's one I keep forgetting. It's another movement. Well, there was the environment. There was gay rights. Oh, the uh, em environmental yeah. movement. Yeah, all the civil rights movements right. uh, at that time. I and as a, I think it's also because of my Basque uh, background and heritage and. Uh, uh, that I had the the best of both worlds, you know, because America is a very creative, mm -hmm. uh, creative, you know, it's a great experiment. Mm -hmm. It's the most diverse country in the world, and it's the youngest country in the world, but it's also the most creative. And I really have lived out the American dream, uh, and for I've. I've been able to do, I've had the blessing of being able to do what I deeply love. Uh, um, so, what, what <laughs> I'm surprised were surprised that it's, it's worked right. far bigger and better than I ever imagined. So, forgive my curiosity, but what were you like in eighth grade? <laughs> Irrepressible. 
What? Irrepressible. Irrepressible. Okay. Irrepressible. Let's see. Uh, well, second grade, mm -hmm. uh, I spent most of the time in the hall. Uh -huh. uh, you mean because the teachers sent you to the yeah, hall? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was uh -huh. in the hall. Uh -huh. Primarily because I was too um, rambunctious. Uh -huh. Too talkative, too wanting to help other people with their homework when I was done. And uh, so that was second grade. Uh, eighth grade was my first experience in Catholic school. Uh huh. And uh, one of the great uh, Basque saints is. Um, Saint uh, Ignatius Loyola, uh -huh. who started the Jesuit order, right. uh, who is the first to bridge Basque mysticism into Catholicism with his uh, spiritual exercises or practices. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so in the eighth grade, uh, was the first time that. I got to see how much of the old mystical practices were woven into Catholicism. And you actually were aware of that? Yeah, I was. In eighth grade? In eighth grade. Wow. Because I couldn't understand, uh, like, the, the whole incense through right. the Catholic Church. You know, it's a, a very old purification and blessing mm -hmm. uh, of spirits of land and spirits of place. You know, and that's a carryover. Uh, and, and I thought, oh, well, you know. So in eighth grade, you were already interested in mysticism. Oh, even before then. How early, how, <laughs> how, how early can you remember being interested in, in the mystery? Uh... The first time that I have awareness was when I was five. Mm -hmm. And I can remember uh, asking my mother if she believed in invisible spirits. Mm -hmm. Did you see them? And my mother said, why are you asking? <laughs> and I said, well, because I thought I saw Grandpa, mm -hmm. who had just passed away, um, come past my bed this morning and stand at the end of my bed. And she said, well, you loved Grandpa, you know, Achicha, as, uh, very much. And I said, yes, and I miss him. And then I said, but do you believe in spirits? <laughs> and she said, yes, we all have a spirit, even when the body has gone. And so then it was very interesting to me, because much later... Uh, when I began to work with indigenous peoples, 
there's always a belief around compassionate spirits and healing spirits and protective spirits and ancestral spirits. And there's not a culture in the world that doesn't honor ancestors. And so it was... Uh, and, of course, in uh, the vast tradition, we, we honor the ancestors. Uh, uh, and so that was my first... Um, um, imprinting and I've never had a fear of death since that time because it made me recognize that we live on some part of us still lives on if we can be seen in memory and the imagination, or if we can be, an image can be seen. Mm -hmm. So when one reads your books, uh, they do this wonderful job of bringing together uh, cross-cultural or transcultural mysticism with practical feet. Um, But, and I want to be, I want to be respectful here. They don't tell us much about your personal experience. And I respect the fact that you may feel limited by your traditions from saying more than you'd like to say. Oh, it's all in the books. Okay. (laughs) Well, but what I didn't see in the books, and maybe I just missed it, is um, what your personal spiritual trajectory has been. Um, In other words, what you've described as a cultural anthropologist is the great, you know, synthesis. Everything that, yes. But have you had, I mean, usually, not always, but usually we are each given a very unique personal spiritual path of Mm -hmm. some kind. And I'm curious what you are able to say about your personal spiritual path. Um, About my personal spiritual path is is basically um, life for me is not separated out from my spiritual path. I understand that. I guess my question is, are there, in other words, is it simply all in the books, as you say? It is. It is all in the books. Okay. (laughs) So there isn't a... There isn't within that, so for example, just to take an example, you honor your ancestors, you come from this very strong right. Basque tradition. Yeah. Has that Basque tradition given a particular flavor, taste, symbolic structure? Everything. Lineage? Okay. <laughs> Everything. Uh-huh. Everything comes from that. Okay. Totally. Okay. All right. I'm not going to get very far this way. Okay. Well, I I guess to say it another way, I don't know what isn't Basque that's in my books. Uh, Okay. Because um, everything that's in my book or books in some way deals with a deep mystery 
Right. So, Miguel de Unamuno, who you quote. Yes. Uh, in one of the towns that we were in, uh, there's a Miguel de Unamuno Square. Yeah. Yes. Um, a great philosopher, writer, wrote The Tragic Sense of Life. Yes. Mm -hmm. How would... When did you become aware of his work, and did he influence you? Well, I became aware of his work much, much later. Um, I became interested in... Well, I, I went through two really deep phases. When I was 16, I decided, well... I wanted to learn as much as I could about angels since I was named for the angels because mm -hmm. I was born on, on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. uh, so that's why I was named after the angels. And I was also named after my mother's sister and they were very, very close. And... and uh, uh, and it was through discovering that I thought angels were really just Western. But I found that um, angels, there's not a culture in the world that doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Of course, angel just means messenger, right? Yeah, it means messenger. Right. And so I thought, well... Uh, what is the the message? Uh, you know, if I were to take a look at the message of my life, or the if what my destiny has really been, and I would probably say two things that that go directly to my background is that I have always been a bridger. So my destiny was to bridge new and old, um, to bridge opposites or paradoxes, or because uh, all my work has been about bridging anything that's uh, cross-cultural. But it's also been about meaning, about what really is meaningful, because my part of the Basque tradition or the mystical root is about um, trusting something that is deep within that's unseen but is as real as the seen world and probably more real uh, that there's a, there's a mystery uh, there and so in studying the angels, that took me into the Spanish writers at that time. And I was always interested in seeing who were the Spanish writers that were Basque because I wondered if they were talking about the mystical mm -hmm. ways in it, uh, or the perennial wisdoms because they're braided together. And so I started reading from Argentina uh, or South America because so many of the Basque people migrated to uh, 
South America and Mexico after the bombing of Guernica and into Russia. So I began looking at who were the the Basque poets and and I found that uh, Antonio Muchado, even though he had a Spanish Basque name, but I didn't know he was Basque. His mother was Basque uh-huh. and his father was Spanish. So I thought, oh, that's very interesting because there's a lot of Basque mm-hmm. spiritual mysticism in his poetry, anything of the, of, of the heart or anything of nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because Basque mysticism is very strongly connected to land and to nature. Um, and so then I started reading Juan Ramon Jimenez, who had won the Nobel Prize uh, for Literature, and found out that his mother was also Basque. And here are two, two classic. His, his, his major poem, when uh, he was 44, he was really depressed. And, and among Basque people, uh, if you experience any kind of soul loss or disheartenment or dispiritedness is uh, you would go to one of four places, either to the mountains or to the waters or to the woods or uh, to the desert lands or where there's heat. And so he decided he'd go to the Pyrenees Mountains and because he'd lost his fire and his connection to poetry and to writing and and he um, felt so disheartened and dispirited. So he waited and went walking through the Pyrenees Mountains. And, and uh, on the third day, one line of a poem began. I am not I. I am the one who walks beside me that I cannot see. And the one whom at times I visit, and the one whom at times I forget, and the one who forgives gently when I move into anger, doubt, or fear, and the one who walks where I cannot go, and the one who remains standing when I die. And that one poem came out for him on the third week. And he read it. And then he committed it to memory. And he vowed that he would say it every day to himself for the rest of his life. And the next day, he wrote 20 poems. And by the end of three weeks, he'd written 200 and 99 poems, and which he won the Nobel Prize for, which was called Juan Ramon Jimenez's 300 Poems Collection. That's what he won the Nobel Prize for. The last poem is this one. My boat struck something deep. Nothing happened, or perhaps Everything has happened. 
and I'm sitting in the middle of my new life. The beginning of that collection is I am not I. The ending of that collection is my boat has struck something very deep. And if you read the entire collection of this massive creative spurge uh, that came out, uh, it's one of the most mystical collections that incorporates nature. And it's one of the reasons why with uh, I've spent 40 years taking people out into nature because uh, for three-day, three-night wilderness experiences, uh, because nature itself is such an incredible mystery and creation. And so you said there were two great events. One was this exploration of angels. And the next was, was starting my looking to see who were the Spanish... Oh, I see. So the Spanish writers was the second one. And yeah. Okay, that's right. And then I found that they both had Basque uh-huh. mothers. I thought was very interesting and exciting. So let me ask you... That way I could smuggle things in. And then when I would go to other cultures mm-hmm. that had similar connections, the ancient yeah. knowledge... And it's interesting in the Judaic tradition and with Rumi in the Persian tradition that the heart of mysticism is really about love and the experience of unity and interconnection. And in nature, you know, among... um, the old way uh, among uh, Basque people is that the fire uh, in the Basque home is considered very sacred, but uh, there's a fire every day in the hearth, and uh, during the summertime, the the coals are still kept hot, but uh, the home is... uh, yeah, used used to bury your children there. Your family was buried underneath the home. Uh, it was considered very sacred. And first level is where the animals were kept. The second level is where the living and the cooking was done. The third level is the sleeping, and then and then the attic is where all the grains were uh, uh, hung. Um, uh, it's a it's more of a way of life and to talk about the mystery other than through how it can be used and applied in life would be a way of desacralizing it or to talk about um it in a way that um, others could not use would be seen as prideful. 
So it's an embodied mysticism. Yeah. Yeah. And how uh, your, your work has been translated all over the world. I'm curious how you are seen or read or understood uh, in the Basque country. Do people know about your work? Mm -hmm. And how oh, do yeah, they Spanish. respond to it? How do they respond to it? Is your work taught in the Basque country? Um, the book is highly read in uh -huh. the Basque country. Is it translated into Basque? Uh, it will be next year. Uh -huh. So it's in Spanish? Yeah, it's in Spanish and it's in French. It's uh -huh. in German. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the fourfold way? Yeah, the fourfold way. Yeah, uh -huh. in Russia. And so are you seen in the Basque community in some sense as uh, whatever language is used, but as a teacher or a I would be seen as an elder, the, as first, an elder. the firstborn. Uh, the law of primogenitors in the Basque country, where the firstborn, mm -hmm. whether they're male or female, passes on uh, uh, the old ways mm -hmm. uh, to, the, to the younger ones. And do you stay in touch with the Basque community in an active way? In uh, Idaho, I do. Mm -hmm. In Idaho, you do? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And in the and in Spain, as I'm, I go visit my my relatives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, since we're both in the second half of life, yes, uh, to be generous with us, at yes, least. Yes. <laughs> um, this beautiful book, beautifully produced book, the second half of life, opening the eight gates of wisdom, and it starts with a, a lovely chapter on threshold work. Um, and uh, you talk about how many of us are entering the second half of life and from age, you know, how the early, the early rites of passage from birth to 50 are well-defined, but the skills we need during the second half of life uh, aren't, you know, those, those skills aren't adequate to the second half of life. So you talk about the frontiers of retirement, of the possibility of becoming a mentor, or a parent, or a steward, or grandparent, coping with uh, maintaining health in an aging body, mortality, losing our loved ones, and our own inevitable deaths. And uh, you talk about the many tales and w perennial wisdoms that point to eight metaphorical, metaphorical gates of initiation. And so the book is about these eight metaphorical gates. But it starts with a lovely... Uh, discussion of uh, thresholds and gates and the distinction between thresholds and gates. Mm -hmm. Well, a, th a threshold is um, a, a landing. Um, it's like grains being threshed. Uh, is it's a place where you let go of things that are no longer necessary. It's a form of preparation before you actually enter into something new. Enter into a gate. And enter into a gate. And a gate is a place of initiation. Yeah, it's a place of initiation. And a, a place of, uh, 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 that protecting and testing must occur before we're allowed entry um, 
gates are often considered places of initiation or entryways into holy places. Deep archetypal feelings may surface when we're at the gate. So um, what happens in these thresholds of mystery? I mean, all of us are experiencing them, uh, whether we're young or old. But uh, for those of us in the second half, um, uh, how do you see what the fundamental questions of the second half of life are? Well, there are many fundamental questions uh, in the second half of life, but uh, it was true of all the, the wisdom traditions, including my own, uh, and in, in the old world when uh, I go back to visit and being an elder among one of the 49 uh, wisdom traditions, uh, there's not a culture in the world that doesn't have a, a wisdom tradition that they passed on. And wisdom uh, is integrative experience. And the reason that I, I what motivated me to write, writing this book is I was shocked uh, by a statistic that the United States has the highest suicide rate in the world between its youth and elders. And I thought about that for a long time, why that would be, and it's because it's the youngest country in the world, and we haven't built the bridges between the generations, just as um, talked about my um, growing up. I lived in a three-generational household where the the bridges between the generations were really well well built. Uh, this culture were being initiated for the first time in history in this culture is that you have more people over the age of 60 than we've ever had. So we're being initiated into our wisdom years. Cross-culturally, youth is identified from the ages of 1 to 35. Midlife is from 35 to 50. The decade of the 50s is often called the decade of integration or the decade of divine discontent. But it's a preparation for when we really begin our wisdom years. Our 60s, cross-culturally, are considered the youth of our wisdom years. Our 70 are considered... 70s are considered the midlife of our wisdom years and are uh, we're really in our wisdom years when we're 60 uh, when we're 80 to 100 and um, that's when we can say that we're a tradition bearer you know I, I would I would not call myself a tradition bearer until I'm in my 80s. I'm an elder. <laughs> uh, I'm an elder, but I'm not in my uh, a wisdom tradition bearer, nor would I be transmitting some of the old ways in the old world until I get into my 80s. But right now I'm an elder, so I can... 
You're in the youth of your yes, wisdom. Yes, I'm in, yeah. in my youth. How does it feel my, to be young? <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying it too, yeah, as a matter of fact. So, yeah. Yeah. so you quote Jung here, this beautiful quote from Jung about the dangers of over-identifying with either the outer quantitative or yeah. inner qualitative world. It's a beautiful quote. Mastery of the inner world with a relative contempt for the outer must inevitably lead to great catastrophe. Master of the outer world to the exclusion of the inner delivers us over to the demonic forces of the latter and keeps us barbaric despite all outward forms of culture. Yeah. So again and again, you've given us an example of contempt for the outer, the suicide at Jonestown. Yeah. Um, so again and again, you have that image of the ascent, the descent, and then the middle world of integration. And how critical that integration yes. is of the inner and the outer. The outer, yeah. The inner life of, of right. mind and spirit integrated with the outer life right. of service and action. Now, there are these eight gates. Can you say, can you give us an overview of the eight gates? Do you want to sure. have this near yeah, you? Yeah, I've got it. You got it near <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the eight gates of wisdom. Um, Basically, we've all been through these eight gates, but in our wisdom years, we go back. We're not exempt uh, that we have to go through each of, of the gates. And uh, the silver gate uh, is the gate that uh, where if we're not continuing to grow, it's the often... Uh, in our wisdom years, especially in this culture, we're trying to retrieve lost youth uh, rather than opening to uh, new opportunities from the place that we are. And so the silver gate, uh, these eight gates um, have a metaphor that's tied to them. There were uh, One of the things that I've, I've taken a look at is that the first half of life is really well mapped, but the second half of life uh, isn't as well mapped. And the one person who has done the best work in the fairy tales of the world developmentally is Alan Chenin, who has done all the tales of youth cross-culturally and the, the tasks of youth. And then he's done all the tales of midlife cross-culturally and collected all those stories in, once, uh, in a volume called Once Upon a Midlife. And then he's uh, done all the elder tasks from a cross-cultural point of view, which is called uh, In the Ever After, In the Ever After. And um, and he and Jane Ullum, Jane Ullum uh, did a whole anthology worldwide of aging tales or what are called wisdom tales, and she calls that the gray heroes. What I did was take a look at all the wisdom tales, all the gray hero tales, all of Alan Shannon's worldwide tales on the on, on aging, and to see if there were similar tasks for aging that were different than the midlife tales or the youth tales, and there were. 
So I put them together as the eight gates, and they are threshold, eight threshold gates that we all have to go through. And there is a story that cross-culturally, all of the figures for aging is the gnome. There's not a culture in the world that doesn't have a gnome figure. And gnome figures are little people, and they have very wrinkled faces, but always with the twinkle. And they have a rust felt hat and green boots. And uh, they love to create good mischief that does good for the common good, for the common good. And they initiate into each of the gates. And some of the gates have the gnome, other gates do not have the gnome. But the uh, story is there's an old gnome holding a ring of rusty keys, tapping his foot on the root of an old oak tree, saying, we all come through the silver gate and we all go out the gold gate, but there are many gates in between. There's a silver gate where is every new experience, every new relationship that we have in our entire life. And as we age, how open are we to anything new? That's the silver gate. New ideas, new hobbies, new beliefs, uh, new experiences, uh, something completely new is the silver gate. Uh, and, and is it completely new? Is it completely new or an adaptation of something old and knowable? It has to be something completely new. The second gate, uh, and they're not in order, because we can be at any gate, but it's cyclic. It's cyclic. But just notice which one's more difficult for you at this time, because after 60, we have to go through all the gates. All the gates were not exempt. So the second, the second gate is the white picket fence gate where you lose your teeth and your face changes. And the first time, the first time we entered that gate usually was between six and seven, but we come back to that gate over and over again, which is changing identities and roles and through every decade of our life. But in uh, when we get to our 60s and beyond, we get long in the tooth and we lose our teeth again and our face changes. But beginning to discover the face that I had before I was born or to discover the essence face beyond roles, beyond interests, beyond what I do, who am I? is uh, taking a look at letting go of old identities and emerging identities. And uh, that's the task of the second half of life, is to recognize who I am beyond the real question. You mentioned what were the questions we'd be asking. Is One is, who am I beyond what I do, beyond my roles, beyond my interests? Who am I? And I think that uh, uh, there's a wonderful quote by Sue Monk Kidd that uh, describes that uh, really beautifully at the uh, white picket fence gate. 
where she says in her book, When the Heart Waits. And this is another thing that I do is I pick out quotes that have mystical. This is the way I smuggle things in. The quotes and the poetry. So here's one of those. Is it possible, I ask myself, that I'm being summoned from some deep and holy place within? Am I being asked to enter a passage in the spiritual life, the journey from the false self to the true self? Am I being asked to dismantle the old masks and patterns and unfold a a deeper, more authentic self, the one God created me to be? Am I being compelled to disturb my inner universe in quest of the undiscovered being who clamors from within? Am I being asked to dismantle the old masks and patterns and unfold a deeper, more authentic self? The one God or the great mystery created me to be. Am I being compelled to disturb my inner universe in quest of the undiscovered being who clamors from within? So, in other words, without going through all of them, there are eight of these gates. Yes. yes. And we all have to come in, th- and, and as you said before, we cycle among them through life so yes. that they're... They're not in a fixed order, yeah. but they are the eight challenges. Yeah, they're the eight challenges. And so we cycle through them, and we have to cycle through them yeah. after 60. And your point is that you have to begin with the silver. You're going to go out through the gold, but what you do with the six in between is a whole other question, right? Yeah, yeah. it is. And yeah. those six in between are, right. there's the relationship gate, there's... Mm-hmm the body identification gate and around our own uh, relationship to sensuality and sexuality. There's the rustic gate, which is about all of our roles and identities, our creative projects, our work. You can't leave the great green meadow without leaving some kind of contribution. So work, what kind of work or creativity or projects taking a look at the bone gate, shredding the false self so the authentic self emerges. The natural gate where I come into a sense of deep understanding and knowing of who I am. Deep trust and comfort and sense of peace. Uh, And so where have been the happiest moments in my life, where the most comforting moments of my life, where the most trusting moments of my life is the natural gate. That's also a preparation for the gold gate, which is every ending, every closure, every goodbye is all a preparation for uh, letting go of the body and moving into into formless form. So in addition to your books, uh, your website um, has a whole set of wonderful uh, tools and CDs and um, articles and so forth but also a calendar with a, a, a quite full teaching schedule you you teach a lot I do yeah and so it's uh, a way I can talk right <laughs> so some things don't change right so 
one of one of the major courses is the fourfold way. Is that is that the year long course? Yes, I have a year long course in the fourfold way. How does that work? In other words, when people come into a year long course on the fourfold way, what are they signing up for? What what do they do? Well, they probably don't know what they're signing up for. <laughs> uh, but basically, it's divided by seasons, and we meet uh, for two hours on Wednesday evenings. But in the season of winter, we work with the way of the warrior or leadership skills or best practices from around the world. And then uh, in the spring, which is the way of the healer, then we work with uh, uh, the eight universals that su support health and, and well-being and take a look at matters of the heart and relationship issues uh, during that time. Uh, and then uh, we do a wilderness experience in June that we're off in, uh, and that's the way of the visionary to re-see and re-dream and re-imagine where I am in my journey and where I'm not, and then uh, summer integrating that experience, and then we come back in the fall, which is the way of the teacher and uh, the wisdom way and letting go and learning about detachment and making honorable closure so that people then can practice all that because that stops right before the holidays, before Thanksgiving and Christmas. So um, basically... Um, is work with self and because there are three universal processes that no human being is really exempt from. Uh, is work with self is the longest relationship I'll ever have. As who do I sleep with the most, talk to the most, eat with the most is myself. And then uh, the art and craft of relationship, the ability to work one-on-one, -on -one, and then to work in groups. So we work individually, in dyads and in small groups and in, in the larger group and it is not um, group therapy it's an educational course of deep remembering of who we are and who we're not mm -hmm. by working with the perennial wisdoms and the four universal archetypes. And you also have a separate program that you do on relationship work, right? Yeah, I do, on the mystery mm -hmm. of relationship mm -hmm. And then you also teach tarot some of the time? Yeah, I teach tarot probably uh, twice a year, once as a weekend, and then there's a six-week course. Okay. And what am I missing? Is there another a course? A second half of life. The second half of life. And living in gratitude. Right, and living in gratitude. Yes. So all of these are Ways. curricula. Yeah. And they're, so one can do the courses, one can get the DVDs and the so forth. Uh, one can use work with the books. Yeah. Uh, and in the books, you encourage people to think about, do I want to do this by myself? Do I want to do it with a group? Mm -hmm. So you're very conscious of the pedagogy of an integrated approach to actual learning. Yeah. Yeah, which is something I can learn a lot from yeah. because I don't do that as well yeah. as I would like to. So it's very helpful to... Yeah. Be reminded of that. So we've covered your books. We've covered a little bit of your life. What I'd like to do now is to turn back to our audience for a few questions, and then I'll come back and wrap it up at the end. 
And I want to encourage people, uh, in order to keep this interactive, and because Angelus often gives us substantial answers, try to keep the questions short and not too self-referential. So stay with the question itself. Yes, please. I've heard so much about your history today that I've never heard before. When might we see a memoir? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Probably in my 80s. <laughs> Probably in my 80s because that's when I could talk about myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. The wisdom years. Yeah. yeah. Penny. Thanks. Um, you ever explored human design? Um, do you know about that? Yeah, human design. Yes, yeah, that astrological form that goes into neutrinos and everything. Into that at all? No, probably the closest I've done with that has been through um, my Five Shapes book uh, that came out of a wondering driving up the coast of Mendocino. As I wondered if the same shapes were found in all art. And so that was in a seven year <laughs> project where I began to take a look to see if there were the same shapes found in all art and I found that there were five shapes that were found in all art and then the circle, the square, the triangle, the equidistant cross or the plus sign and the spiral mm -hmm. and uh, so and I've always um, uh, have had a strong sense of, uh, and love for beauty and aesthetics. Uh, I, I think one of the most healing forces in the world is is beauty, and 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 I've learned so much from nature around beauty. Uh, it's been the colors in nature just you know still continue to inspire me. Yeah. Well, and I want to thank you for making your work so accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I'm wondering how the spirit or soul of each place that you've lived has influenced your work, like Idaho, Spain, and do you live here? I, I do live in California. Uh, I have a home in Idaho. Uh, um, our sheep ranch is still in Idaho. I have a home in Spain as well. So I, I have the best of three very important worlds. I see this is my professional home in California. I see uh, Spain as my heart home, and I see Idaho as the bridging home between those worlds. Mm. Is this sheep ranch still active? Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah, my cousins do yeah. that. Others? Yes. Oh, yeah, didn't see, yes. I'm really interested, partly from personal. First of all, thank you very much for creating some maps. I mentioned this to yes, you earlier yes. because uh, when when we were young and we were contemporaries, uh, we were tossed into various universities and or life situations with very, very little. We knew we knew we didn't have the guidebooks. With the Michelin Guide for the Soul wasn't available. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for like setting out these uh, patterns so we can turn and ask ourselves about our lives a little bit more. You know, with yeah. Now the question I had was, in my life, um, the imagination has been very important to me in being able to think. Yeah. And I've always felt like in the formal education, although we have wonderful movies and stories, I've always felt that the capacity 
to imagine and to envision needs needs a little more. Yeah. Now, I just want to know how whether you thought about this and what you might suggest. I'm probably I mean, yeah. I I'm very biased, and this is where I have a big bias is is that I'm probably more on the imaginative, visionary, intuitive supporter uh, more than anything else. And, uh, and I've had to work in a culture that's very rational and reasonable, you know, and you have to prove everything. And that's been very good for me, too, because it helps. But that's where I've been able to say, well, yeah, we can imagine, we can dream, and we can envision. And will it be usable? Will it be usable? And so one of the things that, that we can't separate out from our great interiority, we can't, and a big part of the imagination, the imagination is the bridge between the inner and the outer life of manifestation and creativity. And so uh, for me, it's, it's been so important. Uh, the one thing I've never, ever, ever allowed myself ever, ever to do is to compromise that. Okay, so that's really yeah. a place of strength for Yeah. You. I'm thinking about the swords you mentioned having to do with the intellect. Like, yeah. And I grew up, when I was yeah. in my formal education stage, I was surrounded by these yes, swords. intellectual swords and I had yeah. to protect myself. But, um, so this is really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I was blessed because I don't know that I would have made it through the educational system in this country because uh, I was really blessed with um, photographic memory and, and acute auditory remembrance of remembering what I could hear because I didn't find that what I was being asked for in texts and tests were relevant to life experience. And that's why everything that I've written includes how you can apply it or reflect on it or how you can integrate experience, how it can be used. Um, when I said that writing was the biggest surprise of my life is I never, I was raised in oral tradition, strong oral tradition uh, ways and practical, hands-on, kinesthetic ways. And so for me, my thinking function wasn't as strong as my intuitive, imaginative, uh, kinesthetic function. Uh, and so I was working with, uh, it was wonderful for me to go to uh, places like Java and Borneo where, you know, they have uh, 127 descriptions for different kinds of intelligences, I thought. Because here it's, it's, so, it's so much, it's just four intelligences here, you know, it's mental, emotional, intuitive, spiritual, or physical. So I really, I, I think the exciting thing that's happening, and I hope I live to see it, but the exciting thing uh, that's beginning to happen is the social, emotional learning that 
is being recognized that's needed to go into education uh, that has just started in the last decade uh, to balance out. I think it's important to have rigor in inquiry and high creative problem solving, but that's very different than uh, the swords. <laughs> And you've had both and, yeah. So in that direction of social-emotional learning, when you speak of these the ideas and concepts that are now taken from the traditions, I have some concern that we're, we're removed from the root of community. Could you, could you speak to uh, our future? Many of us here are all part of different um, lineages that have left their homes and their communities and found their way to this great experiment, as you call it. How do we find our way back to community and, and out of that? I think that's starting to happen. Yeah. You know, there's a great community uh, movement that's starting to happen. Uh, I think what's really interesting is that uh, uh, this culture knows about self uh, in, in the way of independence and resourcefulness because there's a high mythos around that and also around relatedness, one-to-one uh, -one work, and it's just discovering how to work in community uh, together. But it's an old imprint, it's in the DNA, in the human spirit, is um, we have to survive. You know, survival comes through community uh, and through the first community we enter into is the family and, uh, and I see some danger though in, in these teachings being taken individually and therefore not fully embodied in practice in a way yeah Could you speak to that at all? well I think it's um, I think it's one thing I, I don't think anything can be truly appropriated unless it has meaning. And that which has meaning will always be respectful and respected. But uh, I think we're in, in a place where we've got to, was, it's, a, it's the only culture that's ageist in the world and, and we're young this culture is young you know we're the youngest culture in the world the Asian and indigenous cultures are the grandparents of the world and, and, and then you have eastern and western Europe which are the parents and, and we're young you know we're very very young and yet we're being initiated into our elder years for the first time and we're really still adolescent in many ways, and uh, and yet we're highly creative because of the combustion that comes out of diversity, is exciting, is really exciting, and you know people have asked me, um, uh, what do you think about, you know how terrible everything is, and I, 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 you know it's it's we're living in a high we're living history at this time. 
you know, consciously, if we really think about it, is 500 years from now, people are going to look back. We went through a high evolutionary thing. So I began taking a look at that. When was the last time that there was such high creativity, you know, and invention that took place and, and where there was more interfaith interaction and where different cultures of the world were coming together. And, and that was the Renaissance. And was that, the Renaissance. Yeah. The Renaissance. And, you know, I think we're in another Renaissance. Because we're having, there's more interfaith dialogue going on. The six movements that we talked about earlier now are cross-pollinating. They were singular for a long time. Now they're cross-pollinating and weaving uh, together. Um, we have, uh, it's an exciting evolutionary time. Uh, if we'll bring our imaginations forward. You know, there are two things that are said in all the sacred texts of the world. Two lines. One is, people who cannot vision will perish. That's found in every sacred text. And the second is, ask and you shall receive. Ask and you shall receive. And what does that say? Is that we've got to come back into community a little bit more. So, yeah. Yes. Technology and Getting in the way of inner life or inner. Well, I think what's. Yeah, well, I, I mean, people are. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, we have what's called. We're in a place of two worlds. We have a virtual world and we have the face to face world. And we also have, for the first time in our culture here, we have the millenniums and we have the boomers. And the millenniums and the boomers, for the first time, there is not a generation gap. That they have the same values, they have the same values in that they want to end poverty, they want to take care of the environment, they want to um, make the world a better place. The boomers have content. The millenniums know all about the internet. This culture has had the highest suicide rate between youth and elders, and I think it's the internet and the content that has to come together. Um, so that Relational skills and social skills are not lost. We can connect, but what's the quality of our connecting and what are we connecting about? And also, we have to come back to nature's rhythm. And nature's rhythm is medium to slow. And we are creatures of nature. And so we've been out of our rhythm for a long time and there's a lot that we can do in the fast lane but there are two things that we can never do in the fast lane we cannot 
integrate our experience and we cannot develop our character. We cannot deepen. We cannot deepen in the fast lane. We cannot integrate our experience and integration and deepening work requires reflection, requires contemplation, it requires slowing down and it's through contemplation and reflection that we open to the deeper mystery of who we are and when we integrate our experience our we deepen our character and find out what really is important or what has heart and meaning for us. So I think it's interesting. Nothing in nature moves in the fast lane unless it's in danger. And it will move only for 15 or 20 minutes. And then once it's out of danger or it's dead, it goes back to its natural rhythm. And what's nature's rhythm? Medium to slow. What's happening at this time in history? We have a great movement called the contemplative movement that's taking place in this country at this time. The contemplative movement or mindfulness or time in silence or retreat. People want time to just be. Just be time to lean into, to rest, time for reflection, time for catching up with oneself uh, at this time. So I, uh, I think that there's a lot that doesn't work about the internet and there's a lot that does work. But what's happening is we've become more distracted and more non-present. And the only place where we can choose consciously is in the present. That's the only place of power is in the present. And one of the things is most people that I have found cannot stay present for more than two minutes without time traveling. And so one of the things is how to increase people staying in the dream they're in. The next dream is going to show up soon enough. (laughs) Stay in the dream that you're in. And because it's through our conscious choices in the present that we can course correct the past and create our preferred future. But we've got to be in the present. And we're not in the present It's just interesting to notice just today, you know, where did you time travel? What memories got evoked? What ideas or imagination got evoked? Where did I go? Who did I think about? What came to mind? Uh, And where did I come in? Where did I stay present? What captured my imagination to show up in the present? Strategies to address grief and uh, locks. Since I address strategies to address grief and loss. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't hear that. Grief and locks. Oh, I so didn't. Hear. Freeze, freeze in the physical body instead of fight or flight. And oh, locks in the experience of of more in the inner world. Yeah. 
um, freeze, flight, and fight. That's those. Um, how, how to be um, strategies to work through the freeze, the blocks okay. in in the experience. Okay. Well, there are really just eight movements in life that come out of Qigong, which uh, uh, we're either gathering, we're either gathering something. You know, what am I gathering in my life right now? What, what's rising in my life right now? That's one set. What's gathering and what's rising? Rising always helps, helps release any kind of freezing. So just doing the movement of rising. Um, expanding, you know, is another. Expanding and allows for growth and increase of capacity. Contracting is bringing in limits and boundaries. That's the other set. Expanding and contracting, we go through that. Expanding and contracting. So fear or freezing is too much contracting. So to counter that, I would need to start expanding the opening up. Sometimes freezing is too much coming in. The other set is coming in, so going out. Maybe I'm taking in too much or I'm putting out too much. Exhaustion is usually putting out too much. That's the other set, in and out. Then settling and dispersing. Settling is also about integration. Settling, settling, calming, settling, and then dispersing, dispersing, letting go, letting go, ah. And two things, if I'm not present, is listen to my heart, the heartbeat, or connect with the breath, because the heartbeat and the breath are in the present. They're not in the past and they're not in the future. They're in the present. Heartbeat. Breath. Let's take one more question then I'd like to come into a wrap-up phase. Um, any final question? That no, so, Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on Alzheimer's and... Uh, what? On Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's. Oh, I have, I have some thoughts on that. You know, yeah. I think it's interesting that this culture has the highest rate of Alzheimer's in the world. I began thinking about that. You know, besides stress and nutrition and so on. This culture is also the only culture in the world that puts its aging away. It's the only culture that separates out, puts their aged people away into homes. They're not needed or valued. And culture, the rest of the cultures in the world have it, and they honor their elders. There's a place for their elders to give back and to contribute. In this culture, we, we are so youth-identified that we don't honor our elders. We put them away. 
if I don't feel needed or wanted, or if I feel that I'm going to be a burden, it will be much easier for me to start going away. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's very strong and very powerful and very real. Another aspect of our work in, in, is with um, endocrine disrupting chemicals and the impact they have on fetal development and lifelong disease patterns. And there's growing evidence that there's a chemical environmental dimension to yeah, a lot of that. For neurodevelopmental sure. diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, yeah, Alzheimer's. So. But these aren't competing ideas. No. They're just uh, integration. Yeah, they're um, both and, for sure. You've, you've picked up on a few things that I'd just love to come back to as we enter the last piece of our time with you. Uh, particularly, I've thought a lot about the uh, identity or close identity of values between the millennium and millennial and boomer uh, generations. And I often say to my friends in the millennial community that I feel like they are the generation we've been waiting for. Yeah, they are. Yeah, because there is this amazing yeah. identity of values. But there are such interesting differences too. Yeah. So for example, and part of the problem with the boomers was that we were much more ideological, we were much more thought-oriented. Um, one of the wonderful things about the millennials is this wonderful movement called DYI and the maker movement, I don't know, the do-it-yourself oh, and yeah, the maker yeah, yeah, movement. Yeah. The millennials are much more interested in actually doing something, oh, not I just know. talking yeah. about it. Oh, I love it. And this. it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, you try to get them to... Like, I've been trying to figure out how Commonweal can interact more effectively, and I was talking to some young friends about, you know, gathering some people together, and he was basically saying, yeah, but what can we actually make while we're there? What can we actually do? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like they gather in order to make or create. Yeah. And there's a tremendous capacity, necessary but incredibly beautiful, to live on small amounts of money. And, you know, I mean, again, yeah. like the 60s and 70s, yeah. but these folks are living in an economy where there are no jobs. Yeah. And so there's this amazing capacity in the maker movement uh, to, to do everything yourself, to create for everything from traditional arts and crafts to fixing your automobile, you know, if the liner comes off your windshield, which junkyard do you go to to find the liner? And, you know, all this incredible stuff. And I am so inspired yeah, me too. By, by this community of people yeah. that a big part of what I hope to do this year oh, is to do something I'm calling Meet the Makers. Oh, great. Uh, you know, oh, just great. Bring, oh, great. bring the maker movement oh, into the oh, Commonweal community. Great. So I think that's a very uh, powerful... Um, and your point about nature's rhythm being medium to slow and the power of the contemplative movement now um, uh, and just what is, you know, what we can't do when we're in the fast lane. Yeah. One thing that when you talked about the last time there was this much energy uh, was the Renaissance. 
You know, that's a very interesting point, but when we think about what happened in the Renaissance from an enlightened Islamic or traditionalist point of view, you know, they really believe that the Renaissance is where the West went wrong. Yeah. And they believe that what happened was that the West took science and took it out of its cultural container right. and set it free without the guidance of spirit. And therefore, we entered, on the one hand, all the beauties of humanism, yeah. but on the other hand, the destructive power of science and technology let loose without the uh, frame, frame of traditional Islamic science. Um, and, yeah. and, so, and the traditionalists, people like René Ganon, Fritjof Schoen, yeah, right. and others, really have a powerful case that, um, that, uh, that whole civilizations grow from the fire at the heart of a spiritual tradition, and then there's the kernel, there, that's the kernel, and then there's the shell, yeah. as you know, of the practices. Right. And that the whole issue is, can the people who are in charge of the exoteric shell yeah. tolerate the esoteric mystics and keep that Bound. tension alive? But we live in a time when, um, on the one hand, and, and your solution is a wonderful one, you look at all the traditions and bring them together. Right. I suppose the question is, is it really possible that that transcultural perspective on mysticism and its relationship to life can function as, in traditional societies, religion functioned with a mystical core and an exoteric shell that formed a whole society. In other words, do you believe that this kind of postmodern pastiche of borrowing from all the different yes. traditions can actually forge itself into lasting new ways of doing what the traditions once did? I, I do in the extent that I think the, the roots where they join is in the heart of the mystical root. Right. And I, I, I believe that that is what is the sustainable glue for all perennial wisdoms that have lasted through time and will continue mm -hmm. to go through time. I think that's what What's fascinating for me to see is that simultaneously science and spirituality are, are starting to meet again. Um, there right. are more conferences on the joining of science and spirituality than there's ever been in the last 50 years. Which is years, extraordinary. Which is Absolutely. And you see it both in the neurosciences, the stuff that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been sponsoring. Yes. You also see it in cosmology and all the and you see it across a wide range of Yeah. And so I'm I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And it's uh, I was reminded when um, the World Indigenous Council um, met through the United Nations and they decided to put all their prophecies for uh, this time to see if they were the same 
same prophecy that was coming out for, for this time. And of course, the Mayan prophecy is the one everyone knows the most about. But what the indigenous elders shared from their elders from Africa or from Asia or from uh, the island people is that there's one phrase in all the prophecies uh, for this time. And it goes, when the wisdoms of the sky are merged with the wisdoms of the earth and are braided through the human heart, then we will become a rainbow people. I think that's an incredible image for our time. The wisdoms of the sky, and the wisdoms of the skies are fiber optics, the web, so on, satellites. The wisdoms of the sky are merged with the wisdoms of the earth. And the wisdoms of the earth are all the environmental, natural world wisdom merged with, not separated from, but both and are braided through the human heart. And the essence of mysticism is through the heart. Wayne Teasdale's work on the mystic heart braided through the human heart that when we come, which is the portal to the soul, the heart is the portal to the soul, braided through the human heart, then we will have a rainbow people. Then we will live together as a human species. All the diversity will be honored because that's what the rainbow is. You know, Angelus, from time to time, I have the experience in the new school and at Commonweal where something happens in the room because um, a great teacher brings uh, a blessing uh, that enters all of our hearts. And so, with all my heart, I thank, thank you, you for spending thank the day with us at the new school. Thank you.